Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You know, I sat here 24 hours ago and said, what an interesting day it was shaping up to be in Alberta politics. Little did I know what was to unfold over the course of the rest of the day. So 24 hours ago, the conversation we had was about the letter that Todd Lowen had released expressing his concerns and frustrations with Premier Jason Kenney and calling on the Premier to resign. Here we are today talking about the decision by the UCP caucus and a vote, which followed a pretty raucous debate yesterday, a vote to expel both Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes from the UCP caucus. So that was interesting. I mean, Drew Barnes hadn't done anything specifically over the last 24 hours, but it's pretty clear that in recent weeks, and even you could say recent months, he's been a bit of a loose cannon, shall we say. And I guess the premier and the caucus decided enough was enough. So Todd Lowen, Drew Barnes, for now, independent MLAs, no longer in the UCP caucus. So is that the end of all of this? You know, certainly from what we've been hearing and evidenced by the letter that was signed by 17, 18 MLAs in early April, expressing disagreement with some of the public health measures, there is still some discontent that exists in caucus. I will note this, however... Ron Orr, UCP MLA, who had signed that uh, letter disagreeing with uh, public health restrictions, uh, released a statement via social media today, essentially declaring his support for Jason Kenney as leader, going so far as to say, and I kid you not, these are his words, I also believe he, Kenney, is the leader God raised up for these times, even though I don't like these times any more than you do. So there's one potentially disgruntled MLA who's still very much on Team Kenny. We'll see if there are any others that leave, that speak up, that get the boots in the coming days and weeks. So it's a real tough decision for Jason Kenny, I think, in how to deal with this. And probably not what he expected to be dealing with just over two years into his tenure, about two years into his tenure as Premier. Our next guest has some interesting thoughts on all of this. Uh, he wrote a piece which you can find at The Line on Substack, theline.substack.com, offering some advice to Jason Kenny on how to deal with those making trouble in his caucus. Uh, Ken Bosenkel is the uh, author of that piece. He is a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. J.W. McConnell, professor of practice, Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, and founder of Sidicus Consulting Limited. Ken, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob, great to be here again. So, yeah, I mean, it turned into to quite a spectacle yesterday, and I guess the Premier decided and others in caucus decided that a line had to be drawn. Did they make the right call? Absolutely. You know, I uh, politics is a team sport, as I wrote in my piece, and uh, you can have disagreements among the team, but you have to have it within the team. But uh, when players on your own team start scoring on your own net, then I think it's time to ask them to... Uh, find a different team or at the very least not stay on the team they're on where is that line where, where does it cross a line from healthy disagreement to disloyalty yeah that's a really good question and i uh i've been a chief of staff to a premier i've dealt with people in caucus and then yeah. we're no longer in caucus uh, at the federal provincial level and i think the key thing is is that you have to set criteria in advance. And I don't know whether Kenny did or didn't do that. I suspect he did less of it than he might have. But I always think when you set up a caucus, when you're a leader, it's you should probably, maybe not in the first meeting to set a down tone, but I think you should say, here are the things that we, um, here are the things that we talk about here, the things we can disagree about. Here are the things we can disagree about in public, and here are things we would prefer to keep in the caucus. And, you know, if you have a disclosure rule between your MLAs or MPs and the leader, 
um, you know, when we in Ottawa and in BC, when I was more involved, we would have M- MLAs or MPs say, hey, I, I want to make a statement on this, and they would run it by us, and uh, then you can have a discussion. So I either think you have to set the rules in advance, but clearly there comes a point where an MLA or an MP is just going rogue, saying things that are contrary to the government's agenda, and at that point they're scoring on your own net. I mean, you and the Premier have something in common, that you both work closely with uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and, and, and he had a very clear approach to how he dealt with this. How, how do you contrast the two? What do you suspect uh, Jason Kenney learned from Stephen Harper on this point? You know, it was interesting because uh, the the Canadian alliance under Stockwell Day went through a very tumultuous period. And after that, uh, I was involved immediately when Stephen Harper became leader, very involved. And I would say any time a caucus member threatened or actually did something offside, the first person to stand up and say stop it would be Stockwell Day, and the second person to stand up and say stop it would be Chuck Strahl. Mm-hmm. And those were the two combatants prior to that, and they, they saw what it did to the party, and they saw what it did to the electoral chances. And so there was a lot more caucus unity under Stephen Harper, uh, and, and there was a real sense in which that unity was important for them to win the election and that the disunity had caused lots of problems. Uh, you know, we had two parties in Alberta. But I'm not quite sure we've had this. I mean, we've had some craziness, and it is Alberta. Um, it, so, so there's some different situations. The other thing I would just say about Alberta is in the old days in Alberta, you knew that if you were a right-winger and you left the party, the right-wing would still win the election. It was a one-party state. Mm-hmm. The difference today, I think, is that we're in a two-party state. The NDP, as much as they're not my cup of tea, present a realistic and, 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 and possible government. They've been in government. You know, they, they didn't completely screw up the province. I would argue on fiscally they were better than the conservatives that preceded it. And so you've got now two parties that can form government in Alberta, and that also changes the dynamic and makes it so we have to, be, we have to play much more as a team because there's another strong team on the field. Yeah, there is that, that tradition in Alberta and, you know, the, the, you know, with the Reform Party uh, it was so strong here, that idea of sort of prairie populism or, you know, the, the idea of, of grassroots empowerment. And that can bump into, you know, the, the, um, the, the principles of party discipline. And uh, it's, it's a tricky balance that, you know, successive premiers in Alberta, I mean, even going back to Ralph Klein, as, as beloved as he was, he had issues in his own caucus. So how does, how does any Alberta premier, especially in, in a conservative party, thread that, that needle? Yeah, I had the enormous privilege of working in the Ralph Klein government. And I would say that, that Ralph, uh, better than anyone I've ever worked for, and I've worked for a few over the years, had the most incredible finger in the wind sense of anyone that I that I knew. And the caucus knew that. And they knew that if if the winds were changing that he would figure it out and he'd lead them in a different direction. And so I think there was there was a lot more uh, and, and, and the caucus, again, the caucus back then, Ralph Klein would run things through his caucus on a very regular basis. His caucus were very involved in decision-making. And so while there was always uh, some dissent, uh, he managed some of those. I, I don't know what it's like to sit in Jason Kenney's caucus, but uh, if, if, uh, if I were advising him uh, privately as opposed to publicly, as I tend to do, and maybe I'll say this publicly too, I kind of am right now, uh, that he should take a look at some of the things Ralph did with his caucus and maybe copy a few of those. Look, and in fairness to the premier, I mean, I can't think of another Alberta premier in, in recent history that has had to deal with as many crises as as this one. So I, I think that there is some sympathy for the premier. Mind you, he's he's the leader. The buck stops with him, and, and he needs to be judged on how he's handling all of this. Um, yeah, I mean, you look right. across Canada and you have very different styles. I, I would argue that the differences between provinces in dealing with COVID have not actually been that large. The yeah. differences between British Columbia and Alberta are not that large, even though we have an NDP government there and, and a conservative government here. But I do think the tone is different. And I do think the tone both internally and externally really matters during a crisis. And I think I think uh, you look at you look at Francois Legault in Quebec, who's soaring at the great heights, even though his initial, you know, the reality of how he dealt with the initial part of the pandemic, his highest death rates, highest case rates, right. arguably the worst record in Canada, and yet he's flying high. And there's, so there's, it, it, I don't think it's an ideological thing. I think it's a tone and style thing. And and uh, Ford, in the few first six months of this, went from being a despised premier to a loved premier, and he seems to be tracking back down to his former self. But mm-hmm. so so I don't think there's a magic 
ideological thing. I just think that tone and style uh, mean a lot, both internally and externally. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and it, this seems to go deeper than just, you know, the, the pandemic response. And Todd Lowen's letter talked about, you know, dealing with Ottawa or, you know, the coal policy or the, the fight with doctors. And, and, you know, even aside from the pandemic, I, I think there have been some missteps and some controversies that, that were maybe self-inflicted wounds on, on the premier's part. What, what does he take from this? It's one thing to say, OK, look, the, these are disloyal M- MLAs. we got to deal with them. But should he still take some cue from all of this that there's a need maybe to reset or, or refocus on certain issues? Yeah, no, I think, I think these are always moments to, to look around and say, what, what are the things that I've done well and what are the things that I can improve on? And again, I'm not sitting in Jason Kenney's caucus and, and I don't know what it's like there, but I think, you know, setting parameters for, for debate, uh, allowing MLAs to have a, have a view, an expressive view in, in caucus. Um, we've heard that he cancels a lot of caucus meetings at the last minute. That's, you know, that's, again, when I worked for Stephen Harper, there was one part of the week that was sacrosanct, and that was caucus time. And there was nothing that you could schedule that would overlap with that, and he was there. And, and again, I'm not in Edmonton, I'm not in caucus, but if he is cancelling caucus meetings and making caucus feel secondary, I think there's some things he should uh, look at adjusting on that front. Now, it's tough to, to peer into the crystal ball on this one. It's It's been a little unpredictable as of late, but is it your sense maybe that, that the worst is over for the Premier, or is there some potential uh, surprises still on the horizon? You know, I'm an economist, and they taught me a long time ago <laughs> that if you have data that comes inconclusive, you should answer, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, I will say, <laughs> in answer to your question, I don't know. Uh, I think there are things that Jason and the Premier and the Premier's office uh, and, and MLAs can do better. And uh, there are things that they can do to continue to exacerbate this situation. But I don't know whether it's over. I'm glad I'm glad what happened yesterday happened yesterday. I actually wrote my column on Monday, and it was just about Drew Barnes. Uh, and then this came along, and I had to add a whole bunch of stuff and then publish it. So, you know, I think there have been things that have been brewing for a while. Uh, their caucus now knows that, uh, that their colleagues will be serious about this stuff. So that'll change behavior from that side. But I suspect there's some behaviors from the top down that need to change as well. Well, we'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight on all this, Ken. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Always. All the best. That is uh, Ken Boston Cool, as mentioned, uh, former advisor to uh, Stephen Harper, did work with Ralph Klein as well, as he mentioned, also Christy Clark in B.C. He's J.W. McConnell, professor of practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill, research fellow with the C.D. Howe Institute, and uh, you can read his uh, piece on all of this up at The Line. Uh, Jen Gerson's uh, outfit on uh, Substack, theline.substack.com. So some interesting points from Ken Bosnickel about how leaders need to deal with all of this, how you avoid it in the first place, and then how you respond once it happens. So who's to blame for this situation? Did Todd Lowen and Drew Barnes create this for themselves? Has Jason Kenney created this with his own missteps or inaction? Did he react appropriately? Did he overreact? We are fully, fully concentrated now in this last implementation phase of delivering uh, excellent games, which which really will bring the world together, which really will mark a moment, I think, uh, and something that we're all looking forward to. There are a lot of sporting events going on around the world now, and I think this one will be the kind of the real tempole moment that will bring the world together. Right, welcome back to our Calgary audience. Welcome aboard to our Edmonton audience. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. That is Mark Adams with the International Olympic Committee. Maybe to no one's great surprise, the IOC determined to press ahead less than three months away uh, from the Summer Olympics that are set to begin July 23rd in Tokyo. Now, Japan has been battling, uh, as a lot of countries have been recently, a surge in coronavirus infections as a result there is growing opposition to hosting these games. A petition to cancel the Tokyo Olympics is now over 360,000 signatures. So growing concern in Japan, but a determination of the part of the IOC to press ahead with these games. There was a recent uh, article in the New York Times arguing that this event should be canceled. 
Joining us to talk more about the situation uh, is the author of that piece, uh, Jules Boykov, is a professor and department chair in the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Oregon. He's an author of several books on the IOC and the Olympics and a former athlete, professional athlete himself. Professor Boykov, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be with you. So any surprise on your part, first of all, in terms of just the IOC, how intransigent they are being at the moment, digging in their heels, insisting this go ahead, insisting it will be a great success? Not at all. The International Olympic Committee has a long history of insisting that the games must go on against adverse conditions. And so with this huge challenge of coronavirus, it doesn't surprise me at all. After all, there's a whole lot of money on the line for the International Olympic Committee and local organizers in Tokyo. There very much is. And look, I mean, obviously, it's it's their showcase event. They don't want to have to go through another cancellation. But, you know, this this determination, uh, you know, the intransigence, as I call it, I mean, it just seems to to fly in the face of uh, everything that's happening at the moment in Japan in terms of public opinion, in terms of the pandemic itself. Are, are they just uh, are they oblivious to all of this or, or how have they approached it in your sense? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, medical officials in Japan and across the world have been clamoring for the Olympics to be canceled. And yet the International Olympic Committee is choosing to press ahead with the Tokyo Games nevertheless. And for those medical officials I mentioned, this is very concerning because hosting the Olympics as cases are surging and as a very small percentage of the Japanese population is vaccinated, less than 2%, could create a very dangerous situation, a potential super spreader event. And so that's why I wrote in that piece you mentioned in the New York Times that for the sake of global public health, it's time to listen to the medical officials and the scientists and that the Tokyo Games should be canceled. I mean, look, we're looking at 3.3 million people across the globe who have died from coronavirus. The surging cases, the less than 2% vaccinated in Japan, the concern for the health of Olympic athletes. I mean, we don't actually know how this affects vital organs in athletes who get coronavirus, such as the heart. And then also, I think it's important to point out that, you know, we could argue that cancellation is just simply respecting the opinion of the Japanese majority. At this point, around 60% of the population wants to cancel the Olympics. The International Olympic Committee has taken it off the table, the possibility of further postponement. And so they've really only left two options, pressing ahead with a, a huge event during a pandemic or canceling the event. And it appears that the Japanese public very much prefers the latter now. Right. Why, why have they ruled out a postponement, do you think? Well, I guess you'd have to ask them to know for sure. But I can tell you as somebody who watches carefully that there are some, some key factors here. One, these Olympics are already way over budget. I mean, this is a classic example of the Etch-a-Sketch economics that has become endemic for the Olympic Games, whereby during the bid phase, the Olympic organizers or bidders say that the Games are only going to cost so much. In the case of Tokyo, they were supposed to cost $7.3 billion. But then once you start organizing the Olympics, you shake up that Etch-a-Sketch and write a brand new number on it, in this case, in the neighborhood of $30 billion. So wow. postponing yet another year would stack on a few extra billion. There are some specific uh, issues around the host city itself. For example, the Olympic Village, which is been built to host 11,000-plus athletes from around the world for the Olympics, another 4,000 for the Paralympics, has already been uh, leased out and sold these units to other people who are eager to move in. They've already put their lives on hold for an extra year, and they're ready to move into their, their new dig. So there's that going on as well. There's also the fact that if you further postpone, you'd push it past the next Olympics, which are slated to occur in Beijing, China, starting in early February 2022. And so there's a whole lot of sort of logistical issues. Why they don't postpone it just a few more months to see what happens with the coronavirus, that's because of money in the NBC window of opportunity where the calendar is really good for broadcasters in the summer months of July and August when they don't have to compete with, like, say, football. Or, I mean, like U.S. American football, if you will. And so there's a whole host of reasons why they're not keen to postpone again. It's interesting, you know, the vaccination situation, as you mentioned, uh, Japan has, has struggled with its vaccine rollout, uh, very low numbers. 
and the IOC, I guess, you know, in, in the interest, they say, of, of wanting to have a safe Olympics are, are trying to ensure that athletes, the athletes coming, are going to be uh, immunized. And maybe that's one way of preventing the kind of super spreader event you talk about. But what kind of a perception do you think that creates in Japan, a country that's that struggle with vaccinations to have those involved in the Olympics being prioritized? Yeah, this has caused a lot of stress and strain. I should point out, first of all, that Olympic athletes will not be required to be vaccinated to participate in the Olympics, nor will they be required to quarantine upon arrival in Tokyo. In fact, um, they will have to present some negative tests that they got before they came over, and then they'll be tested daily once they arrive, the athletes will. Um, But, you know, for a lot of folks in Tokyo and all around Japan, that's just not good enough. I mean, I try to look at it from their perspective, and they're seeing that there'll be these 11,000 athletes coming in for the Olympics. And it was just announced recently in the last few days by the Japanese national government and the Tokyo Organizing Committee that they're going to limit the amount of other officials that are allowed to enter the country to 90,000. That's still a lot from the perspective of the Japanese public. So you're looking at basically more than 100,000 people coming in for the Olympics. I mean, the Olympic organizers will tell you, oh, yeah, it's 90,000 down from 180,000, and they have a point. But that's still 100,000 people, none of whom will be required to be vaccinated, coming from all around the world, places like the United States, Brazil, India, that are coronavirus hot zones in some areas of those countries, and they'll be sending athletes. So, you know, it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out why Japanese citizens are and people that live in residents that live in Japan would not be happy about welcoming all these people into their country under pandemic conditions when only they, like you said, less than 2% are vaccinated themselves. Well, and, and, you know, it's possible that things will improve before the games start, but the clock is, is ticking, obviously, and then we're getting a lot closer. If the IOC is insistent on this going ahead, do, do you think there's more they could be doing to either address some of these concerns or to, to ensure that, you know, these, these steps are taken to protect uh, safety in Japan? Is, is there more they could do at this point? Well, they have issued these playbooks. They call them playbooks. Uh, you can, your listeners can find them online if they want to dig in in more detail that give suggestions for what specific groups of people that travel to Tokyo for the Olympics should do in regards to try to tamping down the possibilities of coronavirus. And so you have one of those for volunteers who will be volunteering at the Games. You have one for athletes. You have one for other officials, for media who are going to travel there. And, you know, the truth is most of us kind of know in Canada, the United States, where I'm coming from, uh, what the basic routine is and, you know, what are the safety measures that one can take. You mask up. Uh, you maybe double mask in particular situations. You wash your hands a lot. And that's definitely in the guidebook. But a lot of folks that have looked at these things, for example, the volunteer guidebook, have not been satisfied with the suggestions they're getting. I mean, some people that are volunteers have actually backed out because they look at that guide and they say it's basically they're saying, Give us some hand sanitizer, give us a few masks, and give us basic mm-hmm. suggestions on how to you know, spread out and not stand too close to other people as we volunteer. And that's basically all we're being told. And to a certain extent, that's almost all you can really do short of requiring people to get vaccinated. But because of sort of the vaccine disparities across the world, if you were to do that and require everybody to be vaccinated, you might be cutting out athletes from many countries that don't yet have the vaccination and might not receive it until late 2022, if not 2023. Even before this pandemic, I mean, the IOC has been facing a growing backlash, I think, globally. Countries have turned away from wanting to host the games and just the concern about, you alluded to, the the spiraling cost of these events. The IOC looking out for its bottom line, not necessarily having the best interests of the host country in mind. And we're seeing all of this on display with how they've approached these, these Tokyo games. There's the short-term benefit for them, I suppose, of pulling off this event and, and bringing in those those broadcast revenues. What do you think is, is the potential longer-term damage here to, to the IOC's reputation and the Olympics by extension? Well, what's happened with the Tokyo situation and the postponement is that it's really given a lot of people some serious clarity on this organization of the International Olympic Committee. Why are they so maniacally pressing ahead with these Olympics? And the answer, quite frankly, is clear. You're, you're pointing this out really embedded in your question, which is the money factor. I mean, 90-plus yeah. percent of the revenue that the International Olympic Committee collects comes from two sources. One is broadcaster revenues. That's about 73 percent of their revenue. 
The other is from the corporate sponsors, Coca-Cola, Alibaba, Panasonic, these big-name corporations that fork over big bucks to make the, help make the Olympics happen. Well, the International Olympic Committee, if they are able to press ahead with a made-for-TV event where there are no people in the stands, they're still deciding whether they'll allow locals, but let's just say there's no people in the stands, that's fine with the International Olympic Committee, so long as they can collect those broadcast revenues and those corporate sponsor revenues. And, you know, the, the games will go on in that sort of lesser fashion without people being able to cheer. Now, that doesn't satisfy everybody's needs in terms of or, or desires in terms of what they, Olymp- they envision the Olympics to be. But really, the IOC will collect its money, which they will tell you allows them to spread that money around the world to athletes and other international federations as well as national Olympic committees around the globe. But, you know, one thing has been clear through this is that the IOC and the other uh, the sponsors and broadcasters tend to make a lot of money, whereas the athletes don't so much in the Olympics. One really important study that came out recently in Canada out of Ryerson University compared the Olympic athlete revenue to the, ath- the athlete revenue from other sports, like, say, the NHL or the NBA, the NFL, mm-hmm. and uh, European football in England in the English Premier League. And they found in those other leagues, athletes were bringing in around 40 to 60 percent of the revenues in their sports, whereas in the Olympics, it was only 4.1% that the athletes were getting. So, you know, the money is flowing upward through this system to a specific group of people, and it isn't even making their way to athletes. And I think more and more people are, with the pause button being hit on Tokyo, are starting to realize some of these endemic downsides. We'll leave it there. Much more at uh, JulesBoycott.org. Professor Boycott, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight. Thank you. All the best. That is uh, Jules Boykoff, a professor, department chair at Pacific University's Department of Politics and Government, the author of several books on the IOC and the history of the Olympics. And as mentioned, this uh, piece he had recently in the New York Times on, on why these games need to be canceled. I don't think they're going to be. The IOC is determined to press ahead, and the IOC often gets what it wants. But uh, are they courting disaster here, potentially? Right, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Look, we're still, I, I think, in the midst of uh, trying to get out of this pandemic, and, and hopefully that finish line is close. And there is going to be, I, I think, a, a need and an opportunity at some point to, to really take a look back at how we dealt with all of this. The UK has talked about a, a public inquiry to that end, and probably something like that is needed here in Canada. There are certainly efforts underway to try to understand the origins of this pandemic, and I think there's some important questions to still be addressed on that point. Uh, But it was interesting this week, a new report out today by a panel set up by the World Health Organization, uh, very critical of how the WHO and global governments, and that includes us, responded in the early days of the pandemic. The conclusion here is that this was preventable. The conclusion here is that the combined response from governments and the WHO was a, quote, toxic cocktail. And there were missed opportunities in those early days and weeks and months to get a handle on this. That the WHO could have and should have declared a global emergency much sooner. Countries like Canada uh, responded too slowly and responded too late. So... It is frustrating, I think, sitting here and everything we've had to deal with since early last year and, and to hear that. But I think it's important to, to look at this and to try to better understand you know, what went wrong here. Well, joining us to talk more about uh, this report and some of its findings is the Canadian representative on this independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response. Joining us uh, this afternoon is Dr. Joanne Liu who is a Canadian pediatric emergency room physician, former international president of Doctors Without Borders, and recently joined the McGill University School of Population and Global Health, focusing on pandemic and health emergencies. Dr. Liu, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So what was the mandate of, of the panel? What were you tasked with looking at specifically? So the mandate of the panel was to um, look from other pandemic or epidemic that we have to deal with and, and harness the lesson learned from that, look at what happened at the beginning of this pandemic, and then gather uh, data and evidence uh, about what happened, analyze that, and come up with recommendations. And the recommendation was uh, to be focused on how to avoid 
um, the next pandemic. And it, it does make for some harrowing reading. I mean, you know, that, that unfortunately there were a lot of failures that happened, that we just weren't prepared as we should have been. That, that how preventable was this? Well, w- what is quite astonishing is, is the fact that um, since, um, since Ebola in 2014, 2015, there were 11 commission and a panel who came up with different uh, evaluation and assessments about preparedness and response to pandemic. And basically, less than 10% of the recommendations were taken on board. So the reality is, is actually we're not short of recommendation. We're pretty much short of action. So what we say uh, at, at, at one of our first observations is the fact that uh, we were not prepared, but, but more so we did not learn from what happened before. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing is that we're putting uh, and we are highlighting in our report is the fact that in the early phase, of this epidemic, there were some very vital, precious time that was lost. There was some time in terms of from the moment that we, we figured out there was a cluster of atypical type of the pneumonia to the lockdown uh, of Wuhan in China, um, it was from December 28, 2019 to 20, the 23rd of, um, of January. That's a, a large amount of moment. It doesn't look that, that much, but it's at the beginning of an epidemic, every single hour, every single day counts. And, 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 and the delay is meaning that you're giving a head start to the virus to spread even more. So, so um, one of the things we're saying is the same thing as well about the, um, the declaration of the public health emergency of international concern done by the WHO that we think could at least have been declared one week earlier. And so... And again, it's, it's about the, the, the highlighting the fact that hours counts, days counts. And, and what we're saying is precautionary principles should have been applied, meaning that in, in, um, in, the, um, in front of the fact that we didn't have all the information, but we have enough information to be really concerned, for example, in China about human-to-human transmission, then this should have been at least elevated and communicated clearly saying, you know, guys, we don't have the full, the full, 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 I would say, evidence on that, but there's so many convergent observations that it's the human-to-human transmission. Get ready, protect yourself, act consequently. Same thing about, uh, about uh, what happened uh, with, with the public health emergency of international concern. It was, the alert was happened and, and we know that, 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 you know, things could have happened in the early weeks. But, like, what was, is stunning is to see that there was a last month, which is the last month of February, where the majority of the country around the globe didn't do much. They sat on their hands, and there they were this sort of wait-and-see approaches. What will happen? And, and I'm going to start to move when something's going to come my way. Well, as you say, I mean, obviously, a, a lot of this starts with, with Chinese officials and what they're willing to share. And, and fortunately, there were some whistleblowers and you know doctors and other professionals in, in China that were seeing what was happening, that were trying to get that information to the world. But maybe the, the first step in all of this is how much time was lost as a result of maybe the, the delays or obfuscation or lack of transparency from the Chinese government about what was happening. Well, to a certain extent, and we highlight that in the report. But mm-hmm. again, just to say that we probably could have saved maybe a few days. Same thing, you know, about the declaration of the public health emergency concern, which is about one week. But when we look at what happened at country level, national level, from the declaration of the public health emergency international concern, and when people started to do something, there's a, lo- there's a lost month, at least the whole month of February for many countries, and, and I think in Canada it was like early mid mid March, you know, that we started to move to move and say, oh my God, this is this this is getting here. So so we we have to ask ourselves a question: is is how can we next time around when there's going to be the alert raised that we don't lose a public health emergency of international concern, that we don't lose precious weeks where we could have basically contained 
the virus when it was very much more localized and when it gets at large scale spread. Yeah. Well, and, and so when we look at Canada specifically, I mean, we, we had a, a early warning system that had been set up, the, the Global Public Health Information Network, that as we've since learned was not functioning as, as it should have. Uh, we had other you know, pandemic responses that, that you know, emerged from the, the SARS experience that we, we didn't really act on. And as you say, Canada and other countries really took a wait-and-see approach at a time when, when action would have made a huge difference. So what, what would Canada's, or what could Canada's res- response have looked like? Well, I think I think it's 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 again you know, about um, about being uh, I would say very proactive about uh, doing uh, do, getting yourself geared up, you know, for for what could happen, and so uh, it, it's a question of of um, and I don't know, you know, what 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 happened is, but how much essential supplies did we have in terms of protecting our staff, and what did we have in our stockpiles? And how are we, you know, foreseeing, uh, you know, you don't really necessarily need to close your border, although, you know, most of the successful country uh, have, been, have been doing that very early on. But how do you manage and your, your, your border is a, is a question to, that we need to ask ourselves. And we still need to ask ourselves that in, uh, because we're going to reopen, for example, uh, the, our border with the United States pretty soon, I would imagine. So all those things is 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 the fact that when you are in that that moment, um, and it's unclear to me, you know, because I'm, I'm my my task was not to see how Canada has responded, but it was more like a, a global assessment. Yeah. But these are the questions that needs to be answered eventually. Well, and there was a quote from you I saw you you referred to this as almost like the Chernobyl moment of the 21st century. So what what should come out of this, and, and what, what are the lessons that we now need to learn? Well, we call it the Chernobyl moment of the 21st century because we believe that uh, the reason why there was this partly this wait-and-see, I would say, uh, posture in, in February 2020 is the fact that we didn't take, I'm not talking about Canada, but generally speaking, we didn't take... Uh, the threat of pandemic seriously, and and so we we call it a Chernobyl because you say we need to elevate the threat of pandemics at the same level as a nuclear accident or a chemical weapon uh, uh, or a chemical weapon, and so if we do that, if we elevate it at the existential threat level, then then we're going to pay attention, and then we're going to say, oh my God, you know, my life is at risk. And then country as well at the head of state would pay attention. This is what happened with, 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 a, with a chemical weapon. This is what happened with a nuclear accident. It is people know that when those accidents happen, it's such a catastrophe that, um, that countries are ready to give up a little bit of sovereignty, a little bit, you know, the domestic interest for the global uh, interest because we think it's so dangerous. We think the impact is so massive. And, and I think there needs to be this sort of, 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 of um, change of mindset about the threat of pandemic. And then if we accept that, then I think that the changes that are being asked in this report that we offer as a full package will ensue much more naturally in terms of its funding, because we're saying, you know, if we want to be pre- prepared better next time around, we need to fund preparedness and surge capacity between 5 to $10 billion a, a year collectively. It looks big, but actually when we look at the loss of GDP this year in 2020, we're talking about $10 trillion. You know, it's basically investing few billions to save trillions. Yeah. And what about the, the World Health Organization? And, and certainly there, there is some, some criticism here for the World Health Organization and their role in all of this, but what, what needs to change in terms of the, the structure of the WHO or how it operates? Well, the thing is, is, is WHO, I think that we, 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 we need to put things in perspective. And one of the things I, I can say is being someone who has been uh, quite, I would say, a critical voice uh, in 2014-2016 with Ebola about WHO, it remains that the declaration of the public health emergency of international concern, which is the highest alert in terms of public health emergency, 
Um, it took six months in in uh, in 2014. This time it took six weeks. So mm. th- the ideal world is next time around is going to take six days, um, because because we know that by declaring the earliest as we can, then we, it means that we're going to be able to control it when it's still at local level instead of reaching regional level or reaching the world level. So that that is the idea. So. What does the WHO need to do? I think that WHO will be as strong as how strong we want to make WHO to some extent. This is why we call for predictable, sustainable, I would say, financement for, for WHO. That's one thing, but it's not a, a blank check, uh, mm-hmm. but, but because there needs to be some real accountability. And in, and in one of our background papers, we, 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 we relate that very clearly. But the other thing is, as well, is we need to shield, basically, WHO from political influence and, and, and that they can, they can speak freely, so meaning that they can share information as they get it without asking the permission of a country, just say, can I release that? They can, as well, when there's uh, an emerging infectious disease, like this novel pathogens of coronavirus, they can send a team of experts to go and validate what's going on and then to figure out, you know, the, the extent of, of, of the crisis. Um, so these are the things that need to change, but we need to empower the WHO to do that. But that being said, we want as well in terms of, of the, the leadership, we believe to shield them, it would be good to think that um, we don't um, have renewable mandates, but someone at general director and at regional director, one mandate, and no one has to worry about staying popular and getting another right. re-election. Yeah, some really important recommendations here. We'll leave it there. Dr. Liu, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much. All the best. Uh, that is Dr. Joanne Liu, the Canadian representative on the World Health Organization's Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. So panel set up by the World Health Organization. But I tell you, you look at this report, they don't pull punches when it comes to, you know, criticizing the World Health Organization and kind of just a, a collective failure right across the board. And we are back. Rob Ridge with you. Look, I know a lot of people are, are following events closely in the Middle East and this uh, latest uh, conflict between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. It's a concerning situation. I think we all want, at least I think well-intentioned people all want, uh, you know, a peaceful resolution to this situation. And obviously the issues here are complex, and I think reasonable people can disagree on a lot of these things. You know, I think Israel has a right to defend itself. I think we should be clear about, you know, what's what's happening here in terms of the rockets being lobbed uh, at uh, civilian populations by Hamas, a terrorist organization, and Israel trying to respond to that. Now, again, I think there are points to be made about some of the underlying tensions that are spilled over into this conflict. I think reasonable people can disagree on uh, Israel's housing policies and disputed territories. And I think there can be some sympathy for the Palestinian people. And uh, certainly I think Hamas should be condemned, not just for targeting Israeli civilians, but for using Palestinian civilians essentially as human shields. But again, it's something that people can disagree on. And we've certainly seen that very publicly displayed here in Canada in recent days. Now, the concern at the moment, obviously, is about the pandemic and large gatherings. And as I alluded to earlier, I think there's maybe a feeling that there's some double standard when it comes to large gatherings, depending on one's cause. But I do want to, to drill down a little bit deeper because some of what we saw over the weekend was just flat out ugly. Now, criticizing Israel, siding with the Palestinians is not anti-Semitic. But I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of anti-Semitism that seeps into all of this. And we saw some ugly manifestations of that over the weekend. That needs to be called out. That needs to be condemned. Again, we can have debates about this whole situation. Canadians can hold different opinions on this situation. But we can leave that sort of hatred and ugliness out of this. Maybe most concerning was the assaults of a counter-demonstrator in Toronto. But we saw some pretty ugly signs, death to Israel in in, uh, Toronto. We saw there was a video at uh, Laurier University 
last week where students were glorifying, you know, the stabbing of Israelis. It was Nazi imagery at the uh, protest in Montreal, so not the kind of thing you want to see on Canadian streets. Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, this whole situation, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Sophie Helpard, who is Director of Government Relations with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Sophie, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. Like I said, it was really, I think, regrettable to see a lot of this over the weekend. Uh, talk a bit about the concern from your organization's perspective. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I think I'll just start by saying, uh, uh, reiterating what, what uh, you've said, which is that the Jewish community here in Canada is absolutely devastated by the loss of life um, and the destruction faced by innocent people, uh, you know, no matter which side of the border they're on. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, Jewish Canadians are now being confronted by a scary rise in hate and anti-Semitism. Uh We've seen these protests and rallies, as you said, uh, you know, really devolve into violence. And we know that Jews are being even verbally harassed for just walking down the street. Um, You know, I have to tell you, for example, a rabbi was subjected to anti-Semitic slurs while walking with his young child in Toronto. All of these examples of anti-Semitism are contributing to an atmosphere of fear and intimidation amongst Jewish Canadians. Right, and this this isn't unique to the last couple of weeks, and I mean this has been a, an ongoing problem in Canada. I know I spoke recently with Ben Abreth, Canada, and and uh, they published their uh, audit of anti-Semitic incidents each year, and and sadly, the situation's actually worsened in recent years. So this whole situation, right, it, it comes on the heels of of uh, a disturbing trend that's been happening in Canada lately. That's right, and the Jewish community knows all too well how real and present anti-Semitism is. Uh, it is not something that is, is relegated to the past. It, it is very much a part of the present. And I think it's extremely concerning that it is really persisting uh, in all corners of society. You know, you mentioned the TikTok video uh, from a, a Laurier University student. Yeah. Um, it's just another example of, of how prevalent these these anti-Semitic incidents and, and also conspiracy theories and stereotypes and, and things like this are. Well, and, and yeah, and, and hopefully that represents a minority of, of those who are involved in this. And it's it's obviously difficult to know. And hopefully those on, on that side of this are willing to condemn what, what might be happening in their midst. But is, is there more we can do about it, first of all? What, what should be the response to this? It's a great question. And, and I think it's critical that during times of tensions that our leaders uh, and, you know, that's elected leaders of all levels of government, uh, as well as the leadership of, of many of the communities involved, step up and denounce all forms of hate and violence. Uh, the Jewish community has been extremely thankful to elected officials who are stepping up and really calling out anti-Semitism when they see it, uh, as well, like I said, as the other forms of hate that, that uh, are, are equally as, as troubling. Um, because I think if we're serious about stamping out hate from our society, we cannot let this stamp. Uh, without without calling it what it is. Yeah. How does it distort the debate around these these complex issues? Uh, when we talk about Israel and the situation in Gaza, or the situation with the Palestinians or efforts for a two-state solution, I mean, you know, there's so much history here, so much complexity here, but when we, we see this kind of, you know, the combination, as you say, of hatred and conspiracy theories, it, 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 I think it really has a negative effect on the discourse, doesn't it? That's right, and I think Jewish Canadians uh, are extremely concerned about, you know, when anti-Semitism enters the conversation, it really removes the ability to have productive and constructive dialogue uh, on on these issues. And so, uh, like all Canadians, the Jewish community values the right to free expression. uh, But when criticism of the Israeli government, uh, you know, that is a completely legitimate form of political expression. what isn't legitimate, of course, is is the threats and the hate speech and the violence. Uh, so we need to be very careful in not excusing uh, those statements or, or actions that cross, uh, I think, a, a very clear line in the sand. Yeah. And, I mean, Israel's a very vibrant democracy, and often what we see is the, some of the most vehement criticism of Israeli government policy comes from Israelis themselves. So certainly the Israeli population is not monolith when it comes to public opinion on these matters. And, and in fairness, I suppose the same could be said of, of Arabs or, or the Palestinian community as well. So there are a diversity of views when it comes to all of these matters, and it, it is important to note that, isn't it? 
That's right. And I think when it comes to the relationship, you know, that, that Jewish Canadians certainly have uh, with Israel, it, it is very personal uh, and and it is very real and very present. And so there is, uh, you know, uh, an unequivocal, I think, perspective from the Jewish community here in Canada um, that despite the constructive dialogue about the Israel-Hamas conflict, it cannot, you know, cross cross that line into anti-Semitism. That cannot be tolerated. And and as Canadians, we, we cannot stand stand for that in our society. Yeah. Well, and I think from, from a Canadian perspective, and we, we talk about condemning some of what we've seen here in Canada, uh, but in terms of our position on this situation, I think Canada is and, and long has been an ally of, of Israel, but that, that's not unconditional support. And I, I think we can we can criticize where necessary. I think overall there's a hope here for some, some peaceful resolution and recognizing Israel's right to defend itself. How, how, how has the Canadian government, how does the Canadian government need to, to approach the situation right now? So I think the Canadian government uh, is, as you said, um, uh, uh, playing a role in trying to open up uh, the dialogue here and support, um, you know, not only in a, in a global sense, but also the communities right here at home. And so we've been really pleased to see many elected officials from all levels of government, including Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, come out and, and ask that we uh, really put aside, you know, the hate and, and the discrimination in favor of uh, a productive engagement on this issue, um, with, of course, also protecting the freedom to protest uh, and, and, and do so uh, in, a, in a productive way. Well, we'll leave it there. Much more at cija.ca. Sophie, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks so much, Rob. All right, all the best. Uh, that is Sophie Helpard, who is uh, Director of uh, Government Relations with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Again, cija.ca. So, yeah, I, I think we all want to see a, a peaceful resolution to all of this, but maybe people disagree on how we get there, what that looks like, or what changes after this whole situation. I, I think from Israel's perspective, they have a legitimate interest in rooting out some of this Hamas infrastructure in the Gaza Strip, and the ability Hamas has to continually lob rockets at Israel. Certainly, Israel has a robust defense in place, being able to, to knock down some of these rockets and obviously responding with the military might that they have. As precise as they try to be, you know, you're dealing with a populated area, and so we, we are seeing some, some innocents lost here. Now, in terms of what the numbers actually tell us, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to distinguish between innocent civilians and those who are involved in Hamas. And I think in the situation here, Israel is justified in, in targeting Hamas. Whether they've been as careful as they need to be, whether this has all been disproportionate. Again, I think reasonable people can disagree. Obviously, recent events... When it comes to uh, the holy sites in Jerusalem, when it comes to housing policies in Israel, again, and I think there's some legitimate criticisms uh, of the Israeli government. And I think Israelis uh, demonstrate that constantly. We've had how many elections in Israel just in the past couple of years? There's a real diversity of, of political opinion in, in Israel. And certainly there are many who would uh, disagree with the approach of Benjamin Netanyahu. So, yes, it's complex. I think there are some basic principles that prevail here, and Canada is a friend to Israel, and I think Canada can understand and appreciate Israel's right to defend itself. But I think we can also uh, be a voice in, in hoping for some peaceful resolution to this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.